finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is a podcast, and traditionally, at this point in a podcast, one of the hosts would introduce the name of said podcast, which is really a superfluous action, because podcasts aren't like radio shows or television. You have to deliberately choose to listen to them. So you've almost certainly seen the name of the podcast, even if this is your very first episode. But nevertheless, I will now say, this is Dried Up Brain. And following that, it's traditional for the host to say their name. In this case, I would say, and I'm Nate. Now, in some shows, the host might say the name of the other host, or they might introduce themselves. In the case of this podcast, the other host will, in fact, introduce herself. Hi, I'm Andrea. And now at this part in a podcast, they might give a little bit of a rundown of the premise of the show, just in case this is someone's first episode, and somehow they've chosen to listen to it without looking at any description or knowing anything about it, which again, is improbable, but nevertheless, I will now say that this is a podcast where we read things and talk about them. And in case you haven't figured it out yet... On this episode, this very special episode of Dried Up Brain, we're talking about metafiction. Yes, we're, we're doing a metafiction double shot of Lost in the Funhouse by John Barth and Westward the Course of Empire Takes Its Way by David Foster Wallace. Did I get the title of that one right? I, I think so. Sounds pretty close. It's There's something about Empire. It's named after a painting. I didn't look into anything about the painting. Uh, but yeah, these are... Lost in the Funhouse is, well, I assume you have some background to give us. Well, Lost in the Funhouse by John Barth is considered the epitome of the pinnacle, the nexus, the best example of metafiction that was created. And then this story becomes the sort of crux that all of the postmodern who move into metafiction writers and all the modern metafiction writers who come after claim their influence from. So this is sort of the seed that metafiction grows out of. Sure. That makes sense. So let's let's talk about metafiction because a lot of people are sort of confused about what it is. But basically in the simplest form it's fiction that is both about a story, a narrative story, and also about the process of writing a story. Yeah, I think metafiction is a bad term uh, because it sounds like something that it's not, and I think that leads to it getting misapplied a lot. A lot of stuff that is not metafiction gets talked about as metafiction because the term feels... the term feels broader than it should be. Because in my mind, metafiction isn't really like a style or a genre as much as it, or even really a technique, as much as it is an effect. In uh, theater, there's something called the distancing effect or the alienation effect or the estrangement effect. I believe in the original German, it's called the Verfromstungs effect. This is a term coined by Bertolt Brecht. But it's this idea that, like, through certain, you know, choices in staging and writing and performance, a play can deliberately remind you that it is a performance and force you to, rather than unconsciously absorb 
the story to consciously think about the choices that are being made and what they're saying. And I think metafiction is seeking to achieve that effect in literature. I think a lot of people end up calling anything that's referential or self-referential metafiction. When I think what metafiction is specifically is work that is trying to highlight its own artificiality. Yeah, and I think it's part of the confusion comes from the fact that people who are involved in the metafiction movement explain it in such a sort of cerebral way that it's kind of hard to digest. And I think because like one of the things that John Barth says about metafiction, it is fiction that's self-aware and self-conscious. And he describes the art of writing metafiction as an object and a process. So it's kind of like you're aware that you're reading something that's created by a writer. So Mm -hmm. instead of like in the previous in modern literature and postmodernism, the craft of writing, like say someone like a Hemingway, you knew that he was a writer and he created this story, but nowhere in the story is there anything that other than if he wrote a character that was based on himself for you to know that as a writer, he has inserted what he believes to be the process of writing. Yeah. Which kind of gets kind of complicated. Yeah, and I mean, and we'll talk about it because it's referenced directly in Lost in the Fun House. But if you go back and you read a lot of Victorian literature, you'll see that they go through a lot of pains in those works to set up the illusion that this is a real story. And they'll edit names and they'll, they'll invent a frame narrative about, like, you know receiving this from somewhere else, finding it amongst papers. If you read, like, you know... The one I always think about is John Carter has this, like, I think really unnecessary long setup about how, like, this guy ended up with this story that he's going to tell you and you're probably not going to believe it, but by God, it's true. But, like, I mean, there there's lots of different subgenres of metafiction which is also very complicated but i think like to talk about john barth he was a writer and he was he went to school to study writing which is something that like in after post-war became a thing that a lot more people did because in the previous generation you wanted to be a writer you studied english Mm -hmm. but john barth starts he's in one of the earliest first creative writing programs And then he goes on to become one of the earliest writers who was also a professor. So he was a working novelist and he was teaching creative writing. And so that was one of the things that made him unique. So when he moved, when he started to evolve from postmodern fiction into metafiction, he took what he thought that writers who were training to be writers would need to write a story, and he put it inside the fictional stories that he was creating. Can I blast this whole thing apart? Sure. Here's the only definition of metafiction you're ever going to need. It's way easier than all the other ones you're going to find on the internet and all your textbooks. Metafiction is fiction that is asking you not to identify with the characters in the story, but with the writer writing it. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's why, like, a lot of, you know, people like to say that, like, you know, people call, like, Deadpool comics metafiction because it references the medium of comics. But it's I don't think those are metafiction because at no point 
is it asking you to consider the artificiality of Deadpool as a character? You're still supposed to identify with him and his emotional journey, and you're not supposed to think about, like, you know, you're not supposed to read a Deadpool comic and identify more with Daniel Way than you do with Deadpool the character. But in Lost in the Funhouse, I think you're absolutely supposed to identify more with Barth than you are with Ambrose or whoever, because they're just sort of puppets that he's you know, dancing around and, and drawing attention to the fact that his hands are the ones that are moving them. Yeah, and I think it... But I mean, I think that there are... out, Like you said, if metafiction was instead of itself being a literary movement and to be a literary device, there are parts of metafiction that modern writers assimilate into their work and they're not technically considered metafiction writers. So if you like look at like... Neil Stevenson and the, his book, The Diamond Age, he, most of the book is about a fictional book, mm-hmm. which is one of the premises of metafiction. You take something, a construct, and you add it to the story. Yeah, I think those are, a, there are techniques right. and devices that will help you achieve the effect of metafiction that oftentimes do get used in works that are not metafictional and aren't trying to achieve that metafiction effect. Like when I was reading about metafiction in preparation for this like just doing a little light bit of like research and refreshing to be like what what's the official i knew what my stance was which is what i just said but i was like what's the official line on metafiction and i kept seeing people being like yeah oh yeah proto metafiction and bringing up like don quixote and Mm -hmm. i was like that's not metafiction that's a story about stories but like it's but it's also about don quixote the character I think that those things, like, you'll see a lot of references to Don Quixote and then Tristan Shandy. That's I, more metafictional, I think. I think than... they, and, of course, the iconic reference to James Joyce and his writing, mm-hmm. especially Ulysses, those are sort of avant-garde, like, outliers, novels that have inspired the post-modern metafiction movement. They themselves may not be considered metafiction. Yeah, but I was like, I was seeing people trying to go back and be like, those are, are like, you know, these like protean examples of metafiction. And I was like, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I also don't necessarily agree that Borges, most of his stuff is metafiction, even if his stuff is really cerebrally like about the act of writing and the nature of fiction. He's still not, he, when, you know, you read something like that he's written that's about writing it's not he never asks you to consider how artificial the piece you're reading is he's just asking you to think about like the relationship between you and fiction that's like skirts the line but i think there's very little of boris that actually it becomes fully metafictional well i mean i think one of the confusions with borges and our constant mispronouncing of his name, which we won't talk about anymore. I think we got it right now. John Barth was inspired. He he was actively reading his works and being inspired by him. So even though there's a short span of when, or even they may have been overlapping in writing at some point, John Barth took the works of Borges and included them in his development of what he believed that metafiction was. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm not saying there isn't a... I think there's absolutely a... Um... A unity of technique, but not necessarily of goal, between the stuff that Borges is writing and metafiction, and like specifically 
uh, Lost in the Funhouse. So let's talk a little bit about John Barth. So he was born in 1930. He's actually still alive, mm-hmm. which I was surprised to find out. And he does have a Pennsylvania connection for a short period. He taught at Penn State. Okay. So... So he started out as a postmodernist, a writer, and like I said, he was a train. He he went to college to study creative writing, which was sort of new at the time, and then he became a professor. And he was at the time before he started getting like dabbling in metafiction. He was a pretty well known long form novelist. Like you know, he wrote the one of the books that he wrote, the Sotweed Factor, is like eight hundred pages. Okay, and then he starts to do these sort of um, modern, really avant garde things. He does this one book, which I can't think of the name right now, but it's a told from the perspective of a goat. Okay, and which is kind of weird, and he starts to sort of dabble in like the kind of connection between him in the process of writing and what he puts out. Yeah, okay. That makes I mean, it makes sense that the the way we I think the book is called Giles Goat Boy. Yes. Yes. So, he throughout his work, he has this sort of propensity to look at fiction and parody, the sort of serious nature of modern fiction. And I think that's where he starts to move into metafiction. So when he publishes Lost in the Funhouse, it's a short story that he publishes in 1968. It's a collection of stories, and there's actually three stories that are interlinked that are the story of Ambrose. And the one Lost in the Funhouse, the premise is, is that it's him telling the story of a time that he goes, sort of when he's in puberty, he and his family take a trip to Ocean City, Maryland, and he has this sort of, I don't know if it's like a sexual awakening, but he starts to become aware of the sort of effect that this girl is having the, on him. Yeah, the, so the, they're going to Ocean City, Maryland. It's Ambrose, who I think is supposed to be like 14. Mm-hmm. His older brother, Peter, his mom, his father, his uncle, and then their like neighborhood friend, who's this girl named Magda, that Ambrose is like sexually infatuated with, and he recounts at one point this sort of flashback to them playing this like master and slave make believe game, which that's sort of where he has the like sexual awakening. It doesn't happen so much in the present tense of the story, and then he's kind of fixated on her throughout the trip, and then they get to Ocean City and they go into this fun house, this like house of mirrors. Except maybe they don't, or maybe they do. Or maybe and he goes by himself. Ambrose gets lost, and then the narrative kind of jumps around in time and gives us like a couple different accounts of his fate. But the like the biggest one is like the the one that the, gets the most focus is this idea that like maybe Ambrose gets lost in the funhouse forever, and he's stuck behind this wall, and he tells stories to keep himself like going and the daughter of the funhouse owner writes them down and maybe this is one of those stories but it continually pauses the narrative to comment on the process of writing and the structure of a story and what could or should happen here like the thing that i was doing in the beginning of this podcast where i was like this is when a podcast would do this this is what would happen in this kind of podcast is was me directly parodying what uh, Barth is doing in Lost in the Funhouse, 
where it'll be like, oh, this is how you might describe this thing, and this is how some other writers have described it. I think this sort of reminds me of this story about Picasso when people were criticizing his, like, move into abstract art and his, you know, his different color periods. And they one of the biggest complaints that about Picasso was that they said, oh, he can't paint and he can't draw, which is why he makes art that looks this weird. Mm-hmm. And then when you look back now and you look at Picasso's early period, you see that he's a highly skilled technical writer, a painter. Yeah. And then he, as he talks about the process of moving into abstract art, he says how he studied the traditional style of art and he worked in it and then he just decided to reject it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the same thing that almost is like John Barth is doing. He's a postmodern writer who's had success writing in the postmodern style. He understands the technique and the skill of writing and then he just decides that he wants to reject the traditional form of literature to create his own type of writing, which is what becomes metafiction. Because he talks a lot about the art of writing, and he talks about a lot of the things that modern writers, and even going back further, the Victorians used as techniques in their novels, and he points them out. Yeah, the names are, he does the, the name censoring thing that I was talking about, before and he comments on that like oh you know they used to do this to make the story seem more realistic and so the names will be censored with um you know the letter and then an m dash and a period in the same way that you would get that in those older victorian novels there's also these like the the two big structural techniques he keeps doing in that in this are those name censors and then the use of italics. Exactly. Which he calls out specifically as being like, the italics are, are, are supposed to represent something from outside the text, right? Like they're, they're what you use to indicate intrusive thoughts or to credit the names or titles of stuff or to in, like, so those are, represent like these sort of alien artificial voices intruding on the narrative. And a lot of times the stuff that's in italics will be like very deliberately worded is like the best way I can put it or like very mannered and like you get what I'm talking about yeah like it feels like this is him trying to say this in a technical way and the italics indicate that this isn't this is him actively thinking and it's not like the natural expression well I think that's kind of reminds me a little bit of like the comic books that we have been reading Mm -hmm. when the main character gets a different font style or different font color to specifically show, like, his inter-monologue. Well, yeah, or, like, a new character will show up and their lettering will be different. And that's, like, an indication that, like, we should maybe be paying attention to what this guy is saying. Or maybe they're not quite what they seem or whatever. But I think, like, things like you were saying, the italics and then the sort of blacking out of, like, proper names. That's very Victorian. Um, making references to other works. That's also... A common thing that happens in modern fiction that John Barth points out. Um, he talks about the style and technique of different writing devices. And in fact, at one point, he inserts like a comment saying, this would be a good example to do this in your work. Where yeah. he, you know, he is sort of... And then, like every metafiction fan, he talks specifically about James Joyce. Yeah, he's, there's a part where he's describing the ocean... 
And he's like, well, you know, it's hard to describe the ocean. Here's how James Joyce did it in Ulysses. And then he kind of riffs on, uh, you know, James Joyce's very, like, vulgar, genital-focused description of the ocean from that book. I think also, I think some of the stuff that you start to see, specifically in metafiction, start to move into modern fiction. And then there's this sort of, this trend to have main characters, like this sort of, undesirable unattractive un you know unredeemable person the character the main character that that starts to show up in metafiction because mm-hmm. it's like the franzonization of yes exactly american fiction yeah and i and you can see like that he draws a lot from john barth because in the past you know people characters were heroic or the unpleasant character was the villain and now it's become the point where the main character who you're supposed to identify with is a little bit of a weirdo. It's sort of like bringing the weirdo into modern fiction. I think this sort of stream of consciousness that like David Foster Wallace takes to the next level is like also common in these types of metafiction. And then one of my most confusing things is this use of like mathematical formulas or charts or you know Mm -hmm. graphs and different things that you i mean you see that in ulysses and then you see that in john barth at one point he has like this kind of algebraic oh that's the that's the that's when he's talking about story structure he has the the i forget the there's a name attached to it it's like a guy's name but it's the everyone's seen it if you've taken an english or writing class it's the triangle with the rising and falling action he puts those charts directly in the story at one point when he's commenting on, like, this is what should be happening around this point. And, like, part of what's going on in Lost of the Funhouse, he's, like, deliberately frustrating you by acknowledging that he knows how story structure works, but not telling a story that adheres to traditional story structure. And it's kind of, like, weirdly paced and doesn't really reach a satisfying conclusion. And then, as we'll talk about, Mr. Wallace... Runs buck wild with that concept. But you know what? I I think, like, for however problematic it is for him to use that, a writer that does that in a really good way is George Saunders. Yes. I mean, his Lincoln in the Bardo is a sort of, like, that's a very refined, very well-done example of this. Yeah, and I think Saunders is another good example of a writer that uses a lot of the same techniques that metafiction metafictionists might use but is not necessarily trying to achieve a metafictional effect in his writing i think one of the things yes definitely and i think that's sort of why like i mean john barth's work is sort of very avant-garde because it's an early example of it and then we sort of get normalized by these techniques in other more successful modern writers. It was really interesting going back and reading this really early example of, like, metafiction and seeing how kind of quaint it felt. Like, there's a weird sort of of melancholy sweetness to Lost in the Funhouse that, like, so much other metafiction is, like, nihilistic and antagonistic to the reader and, like, angry... In, whereas, like, this just felt like, you know, those metafictions, the metafiction stuff was there to kind of portray, like, the weird neuroses of being, like, an awkward teenager. Well, I think I have maybe a basic explanation of why 
Barth seems so nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Post a modernist fiction sort of focuses on the post-war. Oh yeah, that, we didn't say that. This happens during World War Two, right? And I and even though it's written in the late in the mid sixties, but modern fiction focuses on the post-war experience of the adults that lived through the war, mm-hmm. and metafiction focuses on the post-war experience of the children who were raised by the people who lived through the post war life Mm -hmm. so ambrose doesn't understand life after world war ii but he understands life at the time of when he is being raised by parents who went through world war ii but it's world war ii is happening like there's literally like right but they can't go to the beach because of submarines but i think because john barth is a writer that did not experience that himself Mm -hmm. the way he's writing even if it's taking place in world war ii has a nostalgic feel. Yeah. Because the way that he describes the parents and the adults in the story is different from the way that he describes the children. hmm What did you think of the actual story? Oh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, it's like, like I said, it's one of the, like, I, I, I understand why this is such a, like, a go-to example for metafiction because it's such a clean and clear example of it. Like, it does, it's just, like, there's no no frills to it. It's just, like, this is what metafiction is. It's a story about a story that reminds you that you're reading a story. And I think that the construction of the, the fun house as a symbol is really interesting because it is so complicated. Because, like, you can really spend a lot of time trying to puzzle out, like, what what is the fun house? What does it represent? Is it is it like adulthood? Is it life? Is it the war? Is it literature? Is it academia? Like there's so much there in that symbol. And I think like there's a reason that Wallace continually references it. But the line for whom in the, is the funhouse fun is like kind of a perfect piece of writing. I think my favorite line from the, the story is he just like looks dead into the like reader and says we will never get out of the fun house yeah and i think that's like a comment on post-war society Mm -hmm. and i think when you look sort of when we look at wallace's his novella you can see that even though he's talking about a different war and he's talking about a different generation he's saying the same thing that john barth is saying yeah yeah and i think that there's something like the we've talked a lot i think Maybe not necessarily on the podcast, but at least in person, about like contemporary and like postmodern literature's fixation on artificial spaces. Like we talked, we've just referenced George Saunders, and George Saunders fucking loves writing stories about amusement parks. And I think there's something really compelling in the funhouse as this artificial space, and specifically this idea that like the f- I think it's the same reason that you get like uh, writers like Borges being fascinated by like mazes and labyrinths, where it's like. These are buildings that are constructed and the sole purpose of it is to exit it. It's a structure that you enter so that you may exit. And then it becomes this kind of perfect contained metaphor for life. Like we're born and then we die. And like everything else is what happens in the middle. And that's the fun house where you wander around confused until you all come to the inevitable end, which is the exit, which is death, which is the same for Everybody, but then this idea that Ambrose is lost in the funhouse. He'll never leave the funhouse. And so it's like, you know, he's he's 
it becomes this like metaphor for like struggling against death, and it's like you can you can struggle against death, but the only way to do that is by getting lost. Well, I think it. Yeah, I think that those sort of themes, like you know, being aware of the fake, like in quotation marks, mm-hmm. about society, and then sort of the normalization of the absurd. And then the sort of embracing and bringing awareness to the disingenuous. They're all things that postmodern fiction only took to one level. Mm -hmm. And I think that now, like, we see that in a lot of writers that sort of the absurdness, like when you read Vonnegut or you read John Irving, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. They create, like, this sort of absurd, like, construct and within it the the characters are existing like the hotel new hampshire is a perfect example it's a whole entire hotel that's filled with weirdos and people who are hiding from the sort of fakeness of society by creating this sort of it's very sort of heightened and very extreme but version of what john barth sees the fun house as mm-hmm. yeah and i think there, there's some also something really compelling in like the way ambrose gets lost in the fun house which is and the way that, that reflects the story, because he gets lost by entering the part that's not officially part of the funhouse. He gets lost in like the wall, in the like the background that you're not supposed to see. And so he, in his getting lost, becomes aware of the artificiality of the funhouse. I was thinking a lot when I was reading this, and I had read the other stories in the collection, but I was thinking a lot about. J.D. Salinger and The Catcher in the Rye and how, like, that's considered, like, a pivotal work for, like, young adults in the United States. It's almost the opposite of Catcher in the Rye. Because it's sort of, the whole premise of Catcher in the Rye is that it shows you the sort of the phoniness of society. Mm -hmm. But I think it shows it in this sort of, like, almost like baby version. Like, he, what he, like, points out who's the phonies it's, like, done in this sort of sanitized way. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he, you know... But I think, like, if you're, like, Ambrose and you you can kind of, like, relate to that character, then John Barth is showing you, like, this sort of fakeness and absurdity of modern society in a more adult way. I think we maybe have different reads on Catcher in the Rye. Because when I was like, this is kind of the opposite, I was thinking about the ending of Catcher in the Rye. Like, Catcher in the Rye ends... With the character observing and interacting with another piece of artificial amusement for children. Like it ends with the carousel thing and they're reaching for the brass ring. And I've always sort of taken the um, the meaning of Catcher in the Rye being like all of that stuff that he was saying beforehand about the phonies doesn't actually matter. Like you got to just deal with the rat race. Like you got to reach for the brass ring or like, or else you're not doing anything or else you're sitting outside watching people in the, on the carousel. And this is like, we're all on the fucking carousel and it sucks. Well, that's the, that's what I'm trying to get at. I mean, like he Holden like, is like, I don't want to personally reach for this mm-hmm. carousel for the golden ring because it doesn't represent what I want for myself. But John Barth is saying, why would you even want to reach for that? Because it is just like a metal ring and mm-hmm. it's not going to bring you happiness. And it's kind of like, it's more raw yeah, yeah. than sort of this sort of baby version of Catcher in the Rye. I don't, I have always, I've been confused why any teenager would read that book and relate to that character. Because my in my mind, he's the phony. 
Like, why wouldn't you read something that you can relate to more than this sort of, like, sort of commercialized version of what a teenager is? Uh, I don't know if it's because I grew up in the 80s. I don't know. I, I... I mean, I read it when everybody else reads it. I read it in high school. And, like, I identify with Holden Caulfield, too, like, a certain extent. I think the thing that felt more real and related to me is that, that end result where he's kind of realizes that he's, like, oh, maybe what I was doing was sort of stupid. And I should figure out what I actually want to do. Uh, and I think that feels really real. Like, that's, especially if you're reading it, like, you know, junior or senior year of high school and you're like, oh. Yeah, like, I'm about to be an adult. What the fuck does that mean? I feel like people should just, instead of schools making people read that, they should just let them pick the Kurt Vonnegut book that appeals to them most. Sure, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of restructuring that should be done with, I mean, with uh, school reading curriculum. But, like, if I'm going to pick any sort of bone with that, that it's going to be about how many fucking times they make you read Young Goodman Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Before I'll ever go after, you know, I only had to read Catcher in the Rye once. I had to read Young Goodman Brown like eight times. Okay. Who do you think is most inspired and most takes the work of metafiction into modern writing? Hmm. I'm not sure. Because, I mean, I thought about like Kurt Vonnegut and I thought I... about Thomas Pynchon and John Fowle. But they're all kind of, I mean, Pynchon and Vonnegut, like, they're more contemporary with Barth than anything. I mean, I, I think the thing is, it's hard to point this out because I think there was a really strong reaction against metafiction. I think, like, that's what Westward, the course of empire, takes its way is. It's a very intense backlash against the concept of metafiction and what it became over time. I think if you want to see metafiction in the modern artistic landscape, the place you go for it is not literature. It's video games. Oh, interesting. There's lots and lots of video games that are about the artificiality of video games that are about the medium that comment on like all of the, cause the video games are a funhouse, right? And like they, they have to do all these tricks to make them work for you, to make you feel like you're there, to make you feel like you're progressing. And there's all of this space to play around with pointing those things out and creating this alienation effect. And I think there's also a lot of space in there because video games are more active. You're doing something. There's there's something interesting there with using metafiction to comment on video games to then comment on the sort of rigid monotony of modern life. And so like there's stuff like the Stanley Parable uh, which is like all about the narrative structure of video games or stuff like Spec Ops The Lion that's like reminding you that you're playing a video game that is simulating violence to highlight the horror of real violence. And so, yeah, I would say, I would say the person who's carried on the, the, uh, the work of metafiction are video game designers. That's an interesting take. I mean, that really makes sense to me. So, but I think... Like, I can't think of a really, like, notable current writer who's... There's lots of people whose stuff is, like I said, influenced by metafiction. But I can't think of anyone huge right now who's like, they're writing metafiction. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this, like you said at this Red point. shirts. Is that metafiction? I think that's another example of a really good story that takes a premise from metafiction. Mm -hmm. And then weaves it into a story. I was also thinking about, like, you know those, like, Jasper Ford books? The, like... 
the one with the literary detective. Oh, okay. I mean, but I feel like, isn't that kind of the Deadpool thing, though, where the yeah, character's exactly. still supposed to be real, even though it's commenting on the unreality? But I think that's what it is. I think that one of the techniques that John Bark really takes to the next level and what the type of metafiction he's most known for is the part that takes the parody mm-hmm. and puts it to sort of an extreme. Okay. So. Okay. Well... Told you I had takes for this episode. They, they're all good ones. I think it's interesting because, like you said, there's a lot of confusion about like those types of sort of avant-garde works, you know, and they're sort of what they're about. And then a lot of people have this whole thing about like modern, really modern art. Mm-hmm. Like I don't understand it or I don't get it. And I think this is the same thing. Yeah. So, but let's talk about David Foster Wallace. Uh, so here's what can I give you my like, top level, like, like an Hallmark card reductive take on these two stories and their relationship. Yes. I think that Lost in the Fun House is a story that comments on fiction, but is about reality. And Westward, the course of empire takes its way. I'm just gonna call it Westward from now on. Uh, which makes it sound like I'm mispronouncing Westworld. <laughs> Westward is a story that's a comments on fiction and is about fiction. Yeah, I think that's a good take. I think that there's a lot of parallels between Wallace and Barth in their sort of genesis as writers. I mean, they're both kind of like the patron saints of the MFA, right? Yes, exactly. That's the same thing. So Wallace was born in 1962 and Mm -hmm. he died in 2008. Yes. And he left behind sort of a very iconic, it's a very compressed, very small compared to other writers' body of work. But the work that he was doing was sort of now we're seeing it and it's becoming more and more prevalent that this work was important to the movement of both metafiction and modern writing. You see a lot of things that are happening in modern writers that are actively working now that are taking techniques that Wallace used. Yeah, I think you can definitely say that a lot of modern writers do have a relationship to Wallace that is not dissimilar to his relationship to Barth. Well, let's... Let's do a trigger warning first, and let's just just put this out there. There's a lot of David Foster Wallace's work that is problematic. Yes. There are some things in his work that are very sensitive, and it's because he had a history of mental illness, and he had a problem with the medicine that was used to treat his illnesses and his creative process. Yeah, I mean, that's a thing that happens with a lot of people. Yes. So it's important to note that there are some things that are in his writing that could be upsetting to people who feel the same way. Yeah. And I think what happened to him and what he chose to do is a reflection on how it is difficult to deal with these kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. So he was a very driven, creative man. Yeah. And the process of writing was very important to him. And I think the medicine that he used to control his illness often left him without the ability to be creative. And that was a problem for him. Sure. I mean, yeah. You see that struggle in a lot of ours. I mean, like, even in, like, you know, in the mainstream of pop culture, you see a lot of that dialogue around, like, someone like Kanye West, who, you know, has also had a very open struggle with mental illness and has talked a lot about how that has affected his creative process. What did you think of this story? Because I I don't know if I liked it or not. I definitely think it's successful in that it made me kind of hate metafiction and David Foster Wallace and also myself. 
<laughs> well, let me go back to my personal relationship with the works of David Foster sure. Wallace. When I was a teenager and I had my first adult job, I worked mm-hmm. in town at an insurance company, which is sort okay. of very yeah. metafiction itself. One of the first things that I purchased was a copy of The Broom of the System, which was published in 1987. It was the first adult novel that I had chosen for myself because I was in high school and I was reading a lot of required reading. Mm -hmm. And then I'd also spent a lot of time reading the sort of classics. I went through like the Thomas Mann phase and I read all the sort of Russian literature that was very popular that people were reading in the 80s. But I got this novel... And I read it, and I was sort of struck by, like, how beautiful this work was. So I've always sort of had this fondness and this for this novel. It was weird. The, you and I have... I have almost the exact same thing with uh, Michael Chabon. Because I was 16, and, like, the first adult novel I bought for myself was Yiddish Policeman's Union, which had come out, like, that year. Yeah, and I think it's... But I think for myself, which is kind of like, people read novels and say, like, I want to be a writer. Yes. And I've never had that. I never wanted to be a writer. I never really wrote anything. I never had the desire to, like, and that and it's compulsion or to be driven as a writer. But I've always you're, had... To, you're very lucky. It I know. sucks. When we talk about <laughs> David Foster Wallace, I realize that. But I've always had this passion for reading. Like sure. People are like, I love to read. I actually do love to read. I have to read every single day. Yeah, you read more than anyone I've ever met. You're the most well-read person that I know. But when I read The Broom of the System, I felt like I always want to read novels that are as good as this. I mean, The Broom of the System is real good. Right. So This this is not as good as Broom of the System. No, nowhere near as good. Uh, I I, I don't think this is like... People have been listening to the podcast for a while... May or may not have heard our episode on, uh, what's that, what kind of day did you have? Yes, the Saul Bellows. Saul Bellows one, which we were really down on. I don't think this is quite that. No. But this is definitely a lesser work, and it's, it's much longer than I thought it was going to be. Also, it's it's important to note that even though this this is part of the Girl with Curious Hair compilation which comes out after broom of the system this was actually written before that that makes and sense it, and it's often referred to as like juvenilia or a prototype or an early work I've heard but of- let's talk about wallace's career mm-hmm. so he was the same he was very similar to john barth he what he went through a writing program he became a writing professor and he was a working novelist as he was a work as he was working mm-hmm. as a professor and a bandana enthusiast yes Yes. Can I, is it appropriate for me to say that Foster Wallace is the most Gen X writer? I think so. And I think, like, people talk about, like, you mentioned off podcast that he's considered, like, a bro writer. That's like, okay, I wanted to talk about this on this episode, because that was a thing that was confusing. You see on Twitter this proliferance of this, this scourge of the lit bro, which is a, apparently a type of person that, like, every other date that someone goes on in New York is with this kind of like boisterous, unself-awarely misogynistic, literature-obsessed dude, like in his mid to late 20s. 
And David Foster Wallace is like the avatar for those guys. He's their favorite writer. Like it, a copy of Infinite Jest kind of became a punchline for like pretentious, pretentious douchebag dude. And I was always sort of confused by that because I was like, one, you know, I studied, I went and majored in English in college. Like I barely ever encountered any lift bros unless I'm one of them. And then I've encountered, like, two of them. So I was always confused by, like, how there were enough of them that he could have gotten this reputation of through association with these dudes. But reading this, it made more sense to me than ever. I think so. But I think I relate, like you said, I, I consider him a Gen X writer. Yeah. And I feel like your generation feels about David Foster Wallace the way that my generation feels about Tom Wolfe. Oh, I was going to guess it, John Updike. And I was thinking, like... Infinite Jest is the equivalent of the bonfires of the vanity. You know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. See less copies of it in thrift shops, though. But I don't know. I mean, I can't speak to him sort of being a bro writer and... and I don't... I think it's, like, splash damage. I think the, 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 the association is more that these bros, bros in that they are dudes who present themselves as being more intelligent but are still, like, susceptible to the same kind of, like toxic masculinity and misogyny that like a frat bro would have uh like him and i think for some people that are not as familiar with his work it gets like pushed back on him that he is also one of these guys but this one is his most lit bro-y thing i've ever read i also think that i mean he like literally calls out that stereotype in his brief interviews with his yeah, hideous yeah. man I, I think that's him wrestling and I with think the beginning of, of that reputation he has he has some atonement to make up for having that mentality because there is this sort of episode in his life where he himself acts this way. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see like some of the characters in Infinite Jess and these characters, especially like Mark in the story, he calls out this sort of stereotype of what is considered an acceptable male. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. But I think Infinite Jess is like Ulysses in that like, People don't you, actually read it. If you want to appear intellectual, you ha- you claim reading that. Yeah. The only thing I'll say about Infinite Jest is it's not difficult to read. It's just complicated. But it is one of the few it's books. Long. One of the few books that I have read that reading it as an ebook has actually made it better. Oh, because you can just click the, yes. the footnotes, right? That I mean, I read sense. it in print and then I read it later on as an ebook, and it is definitely more accessible. It's less it. of a finger workout, though, if you're reading it in an yes. ebook. You're not going to get them strong hands from having to hold half the book open and then another half open to a different page. I have to tell you that one of the like only audio book missteps that I ever took was to try to listen to an audio version of The Pale King. So, Didn't the audio version come out before the print version? I remember there being like a weird thing about that with that book. I think that's might have been why I listened to it. But I remember like because, you know, he, that was posthumous. Right. Right. Was, like just barely posthumous, I think. And so there was like a lot of anticipation and questioning around that. And there was that whole thing about like, is this going to win the uh, the Pulitzer, Right. Right. And it was like that and Swamplandia, and they didn't didn't end up giving yeah, the award. which was just bullshit like for in, both of those In things. retrospect, right, they should have given it to Swamplandia. Yeah. I remember at the time being like, well, you know, I don't know. But, like, now that, you know, 
10 years have passed. I'm like, they should just give but it to I Karen think, Russell. Like, what? why? But I think the thing was, the justification for the Pal King to be nominated was that they had realized that he was an important writer and he had never won it an award. Yeah. And was, he kind of got the John Updike, like... Well, that's what they were saying. The reason they ended up not giving the award was they were like, well, we don't want to do this, like... We want to give it for the work and not for his career. But it's like, you definitely did that with John Updike, though. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure John Updike will tell you that. I mean, it's just... So anyway, this story, which was written... (gasps) Do you want to try and explain what this story is about? (laughs) It's, um... Well, it's a work of metafiction. It's a work of irony. It, it, It heavily relies on the construct of metafiction. And it's sort of... And it's also homage to John Barth. I can try and give a, a, an overview for people. I think I have a good handle on this. Everything in the story radiates out from, appropriately, the writing workshop at the East Chesapeake Trade School. Which is like, that's a very Foster Wallace thing that he will take to an extreme in Infinite Jest. The like construction of these fake places that are just like slightly off. Right. Or, like, fake company names or, like, for programs at schools and stuff. And like, he's all about that. Or, like, names of prescription medications. Yeah, so why wouldn't you have a trade school? That has a writing program that's taught by a thinly veiled John Barth. Right. So this, this writing program is being taught by Ambrose, the character from Lost in the Funhouse, who in the world of this story is the guy who wrote Lost in the Funhouse, which is this huge popular story and so he kind of you know in the in Lost in the Funhouse he's kind of a a, a, a uh, avatar for Barth and then in this he's kind of a disguise for Barth and then there are two students in this writing program who are kind of diametric opposites uh, there's D.L. Eberhardt right that's her name right Drew Lynn yeah, yeah. and then there's Mark Nectar and they're kind of rep- I think that these characters make more sense if you think of them not as people, but as competing impulses in the brain of David Foster Wallace. And DL is a, a self-proclaimed postmodernist. She's aggressively weird. Uh, this is the broy part of the story because she's a woman, and a lot of the story is focused on explaining how and why she sucks and why she's unattractive. Uh, and she writes metafiction, but it's this very—I don't want to say mannered again. I feel like I use that word a lot, but it's this like. It's completely about the construction. Like, she, at one point she writes a poem that's entirely punctuation. And it's just... It's artificiality for artificiality's sake. And she's, like, a bad writer. And she's and, extremely prolific. Yes. And Mark Nectar is stymied because he's a more realist and authentic writer. But he can almost never get anything done. And he's very self-conscious about the fact that almost all of his stories are inspired by stories he has heard. Or seen in the world. And so they're, they kind of represent, I think, in Wallace's head, the competing impulses between the harder, more authentic, realist literature that... And then the, the, the anxiety about that maybe being, like, phony, too, because you're drawing it from real places. And then the impulse to do this easier metafiction stuff because it's just playing around with structures that you've already, like, internalized. So you can just sort of riff on it endlessly. And then also while this is happening... Professor Ambrose is working with J.D. Steelritter, a legendary ad man who worked for McDonald's and helped build it into the empire it is today, to launch a chain of Lost in the Funhouse themed 
Discotheques. Discotheques. Like, like nightclubs, I guess, right? Uh, which are essentially going to be for nightclubs as McDonald's is for restaurants is the idea. It'll be the community's funhouse nightclub. And to promote the launch of these, Steel Ritter is engineering the world's greatest McDonald's commercial, which will end... Actually, I think I love this story. <laughs> that will end the concept of advertising, allowing him to finally rest by reuniting every actor that's ever been in a McDonald's commercial ever, of which DL is one of them. And then so a lot of the story is them in transit to this reunion where they get these other people who are also in the commercials to come along with them and they meet Steel Ritter's son and then they never show us the reunion, and the story basically ends with a description of a story that Mark will eventually write in the future. Yes, so that's pretty much it. I think it's interesting to note that Wallace claims that he wrote this as a response to what he he called amoral realism, which was happening in the late 80s. Is that like the dirty realism stuff? I think this is a direct reaction to the popularity of Brett Easton Ellis. And I think that's what this is. But I think we're... That makes sense. All the advertising executive stuff makes more sense. But I think this is where it's a homage to John Barth, but then it sort of explodes into like Wallace. I think it's less of an homage to John Barth as it is Wallace wrestling with the influence Barth has had on him. I feel like this entire story is about his anxieties as a writer. I think so, too. And I think it also... The way that Wallace describes his characters and their predilections and their weirdness is is very personal. Yes. And I feel like you can read his stories and you can... Learn about his characters, and there is something there that is very personal, and it's going to affect you. They have these very strange habits. He's very a sort guy of, with a backwards eyeball. Yes, and then so he, I the think, one point where Sternberg, who is another character, that's the guy with the backwards eyeball. Yeah, he gets exposed to su- to poison sumac. This part is so weird. <laughs> and instead of taking, because he doesn't really take the time. I think this is like. Him just like trying to like pick apart Easton, yes. Ellis. He instead of taking medicine to cure his sumac, he takes medicine that's for sumac. That makes it worse. So he is chronically now years later still affected by the sumac. But the way it manifests are these sort of um, pustules all over his face, so that he has an anxiety. So he has an anxiety about his appearance, but then he's also compelled to be an actor. Yeah, and he's a jerk. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't read the Ellis thing specifically, but I definitely got the vibe that Sternberg was supposed to be this comment on that kind of, like, dirty, vulgar realism where it's like, oh, here's just a parade of misery happening to this guy. It's supposed to be realistic, but, like, he is this cartoon of calamities. But it's also, I mean, one of the things that he does is he sort of comments on modern culture. Like, John Barth sort of comments on societal... You know, mm-hmm. trends, but then I think that Wall specifically talks about sort of like the excess and the greediness of the 1980s. And there's yeah. like, one of my favorite things is that J.D. Steelreader. He's is, like the best character. In yes. This. I mean, he could definitely be his own character. Like someone should do a homage to Wallace and write a story about him. But at one point he's promoting this t- 
like helicopter company, which is called Lord Aloft. Yeah, it's Jack Lord, the guy from Hawaii Five-0. Yes. Also, they watch Hawaii Five-0, and in the story that Mark writes at the end of the story, <laughs> Jack Lord is the warden of the prison that the story takes place in. But you see that a lot in modern writing now, this sort of trend to like comment on pop culture by having a contract that's very timely. At the time that Wallace is writing, these kinds of things are very prevalent, this sort of um, celebrity spokesperson is becoming like a huge trend. Yeah, this story is distressingly prescient. I mean, Can we talk point, about how he com- like this is essentially a story written in like what 1985, probably that if it's written before Broom in the System, that is like about 2016. Well, that's what I was like, saying. I, at one point I'm reading this and I made a note to myself and I said, wait, did Wallace just predict the rise of the hipster he or millennial culture? He predicts that. He predicts Facebook. He predicts like Gamergate in this. Because there's this whole part that I think is actually my favorite part in the story where DL is having this interminable Kafka-esque struggle to rent a car and she will only ride in Dotsons because... Her psychic told her that she has to. Like, that's a whole... Like, DL's, like, weird for weirdness's sake. And so there's a whole thing about her, like, having to do stuff that her her psychic says. And then, while that's happening, a representative from J.D. Steelritter shows up. Like, one of his admin, who's conducting field research. And he's willing to give them things, like a ride, in exchange for personal information. And he talks extensively in this part about how this personal information is, like, the ultimate currency... And it's like, oh, yeah, like that's like the internet. That's like all the stuff that's going on with Facebook now and like Google and all of these companies cataloging and stealing our personal information. And like he wants them to tell them like, oh, what's your greatest fear and whatever. And we'll, you know, in exchange for that, I'll give you this these conveniences. And it's like this in this like story written in the 80s. This physical representation of the current modern day internet just like walks into the story and presents himself. I thought it was really interesting too that he was doing research, but it wasn't about what makes people happy, but what makes people afraid. Yeah. And people had most specific fears. Yeah. Like one of them was, I'm afraid I'm going to scald my husband while he's sleeping. And then the (laughs) other one was, I'm afraid I'm going to be scalded in my sleep. It was like they had this sort of like, Everyone who walked around this airport was having an existential crisis. Yeah. But I think it was, like, interesting where it was, like, no one had any credit cards. And no one sort of understood how, like, important in J.D. Steel Ritter's mind credit cards were. Yeah. And then Steel Ritter has this whole discussion about, like, credit is, like, this form of control. And it's this thing the government deals out to you or corporations deal out to you that they can use to control you. And, like, again, that felt, like, really prescient and, like, relevant to this current day. And Steel Ritter's full of that stuff because there's also that whole part. When I said, oh, he predicts, like, Gamergate or, like, whatever, like, this weird anti-Star Wars reaction. There's this whole part where they're in the car and DL is, uh, in a way, he predicted me. DL's being too woke to enjoy anything. And she gets in an argument with Steel Ritter's son who he's, like... Yeah, like, all your stuff sucks because it's all politics and, like, pop culture's cool because it doesn't have any politics. And Steelworker goes off on, like, how everything is political, all art is political. And he gives this dissection of Hawaii Five-0 as a 
as like Vietnam War propaganda, essentially, or like a or an attempt to rewrite the Vietnam War into being this valorous thing that was like really on point and like really predicted a lot of the dumb arguments everyone is having on Twitter currently. I like the his son because first of all, his son has this car that he built himself that's made from all of these different parts and never can stop running because if it stops running, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, another... And then his son doesn't care about money and status or anything like that. And he has this job where he is Ronald McDonald. And yeah. I don't know if they actually say that. No, they do. So he's Ronald McDonald and he does not care about the job and that drives Steel Ritter crazy because he never he doesn't respect the position of being Ronald McDonald. He doesn't keep his his wig on. He loses his nose at one point. He doesn't have any respect. And their relationship and their conversation and and the son's values compared to the father reminds me of how like on Twitter there's this constant conversation about boomers and millennials yeah. and this sort of you know, moralistic, like, differences based on, like, you know, this his father who loves commercialism, he loves capitalism, and the son who rejects all of these things. And he wants to make atonal music. Yes. I love that. And there's this sort of misunderstanding where he keeps saying, for whom, for whom, and the father finally snaps and he says, stop saying that. And it turns out that that's, he's actually saying varoom, which is part of his, like, industrial atonal music composition that he's been working on Mm -hmm. so it's kind of really strange and yeah like really relevant for some reason and i really was like the part that sort of was really heavy-handed to me was the part about the deep fried roses well yeah what was it with the rose there's a lot of stuff about like they're eating fried roses and it's like you shouldn't eat a thing that's beautiful i guess that like What's your take on it? Ambrose gives the roses to Mark mm-hmm. to try to unconstipate his creative process. Yeah. and But it actually has that physical effect on Sternberg, who eats it, mm. who, who has anxiety, bathroom anxiety, which is sort of very... I feel so sorry for this man in this story because he has these... His social anxieties are so exaggerated that it's like... You can't yeah. help but feel sorry. But at one him. point, he flips an arrow into someone's peach cobbler, and when they get mad at him, he tries to high road them like he is actually the one that's inconvenienced. Like he's a, he's a dick. But couldn't you see that happening though? I mean, sure, it, it happens all the time in like the service industry. So anyway, he's Mark is addicted to eating these roses, and it does not help him free up his, like, writer's block. Mm -hmm. He has writer's block because he has written one story, and he has such guilt about his creative process. That he may or may not have ripped it off from a radio program? Is that what it was? Yes. Like, you listen to, like, a This American Life or something? But then it turns out that J.D. Steelritter has been giving these roses to Ambrose... Yeah. As a way to control him to get him to agree to this franchise of the fun houses. And there's a this really tense moment where they all realize that like these roses are being eaten for the wrong reason and DL goes on this tangent where she says you shouldn't put something inside your body that's beautiful. That you're supposed to look at it. Is that DL? I thought that was the woman that may or may not be Magda. Right. Uh yeah, there's so. I, I mean, I think it's getting at the idea that, like, you know, 
metafiction is like eating fiction, which is this thing that's constructed to be like beautiful and observed and not like this thing that's to be dissected. And it's like consuming that for fuel. I think there's a lot of anxiety in this story about like metafiction killing fiction. The big story that Mark writes at the end is about a guy named David or Dave. Dave. Who goes to prison. Goes to prison because his love, L, like, L dash, like the Victorian thing, like literature, dies because of this arrow that, like, throughout the story is this symbol of, like, writing and creativity. And it's like, this is like, that last story is Wallace telling us what his greatest fear is, which is that he's going to end up losing his love for literature because of the intensity of this metafiction shit. But I think he ends up. Actually, inadvertently, he ends up does he does end up killing metafiction. Yeah, he did it. He, well, no, he doesn't kill literature, but he, yeah, he kind of does kill metafiction. You're when right. When he publishes Infinite Jazz, it is like it is like the Ulysses. It is the extreme most relevant version of metafiction that can be created, and anyone after that is immediately always going to be compared to Infinite Jest. But is, I don't think Infinite Jest is metafiction, though, right? You don't think that's metafiction? I don't know. I, I, I'd have to go... I haven't... One, I never actually finished it. I'd have to go back and read it. Um, but, like, I know it uses, like, those structural games of metafiction with, like, the footnotes and stuff, but is it ever, like, this is a story, this is how a story works... I feel like it's 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 definitely I think the thing with Infinite Jest, the vibe I got from what I read was less that it's trying to draw your attention to the artificiality of the work itself, but to the artificiality of the world. Like the real world that we live in. But I think the things that John Barth uses to create his metafiction, the things like the nested footnotes and yeah. this sort of reusing this sort of construct of Victorian, all those techniques Wallace takes to the extreme. Mm-hmm. I mean, he like he becomes known for like creating these sort of self-created abbreviations and different. You know, there's in Infinite Jest, all the tennis groups have yeah, this sort he, of. He makes up a sport. Yeah, and then he sort of makes up these sort of. Um, he brings in the sort of corporateness of like the writing that's sort of nodded to in John Barth, but like John Barth was like, I made a seven a seven nested footnote, and David Foster Wallace was like. I made a 5,000 nested footnote that's actually a short story that's longer than some of the chapters in the book. So he takes everything further to the point where, where can you take that? Yeah. No, I think you're right. That's why, like, what I was saying, where it's like it's hard to to point to the person that's, like, doing metafiction big time in mainstream literature. One of the things that I love about David Foster Wallace and it's very relatable to me, is that he has this tendency to create his own catchphrases. And he uses them in in such a really, like, sophisticated way. you got to give me an example. I don't like, know this whole thing, about. like, where, you know, it's supposed to be homage to the funhouse. And J.D.'s son keeps saying, Varum, and um, it's being constructed as for whom. Oh, yeah. And oh. that's sort of, like... I have a theory about this story, which is it exists entirely because he thought of the phrase, for whom is the funhouse a house? Yeah, <laughs> which is well, like the thing, right? Like, fun, for us, the fun house is about reality. So it's like, for whom is the fun house fun? It's about like personal experience. This is for whom is the fun house a house? It's about the structure. It's about metafiction. Who is this metafiction for? Who's it helping? Who's living in this fucking fun house? But I think you can see, like you mentioned, like Michael Chabon, and I think like 
he takes, I mean, he's technically, he's, he's sort of like in that sort of Venn diagram of overlapping, but he takes. He's what much we, further away from the metafiction stuff yeah, than but the, he takes anyone else we've like, talked about. The things that Wallace does, like this sort of um, dependence on pop culture or being aware of pop culture, and in things like Telegraph Avenue, you can see that sort of a pivotal plot point. Yeah. And he takes sort of the tools that Wallace uses and he refines them and he brings them into mainstream modern fiction and he does it in a very sophisticated way. I think you can also see both Shabon and Wallace doing this sort of thing where it's like, let's take some of the world-building techniques of genre fiction and apply them in this literary space. Because, like, Nevada Jess is basically a science fiction story. And then it's like you have Shabon with, like, Yiddish Policeman's Union where it's like, here's, like, an alt history, which is a thing that had up until that point mostly been confined to, like, Harry Turtledove paperbacks. But I think sort of that door that was opened by the sort of cutting-edge work that was done on Infinite Jazz is really starting to pay off. And I think to go back what you said about Infant Jess being a science fiction novel, it's a science fiction novel only if Kurt Vonnegut is a science fiction writer. Kurt Vonnegut is 100% a science fiction writer. So then I will never concede that point. But I think it's sort of... It, his body of work that is problematic and Infinite Jess is sort of a very difficult book to read. Because yeah, it kind of feels like his first novel is his least problematic. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's exactly... It's almost like a John Barr thing. He has proven that he can technically write in a modern style. And then mm. he said, I'm done with that. I did it. Here's my novel. Here's my most traditional novel. Here's a big sag of footnotes. <laughs> Eat them up. <laughs> yeah. And now, for you weirdos, here's something that's really going to work for you. But I think, like... Modern writers who read that can take the parts that are most relevant and most personal to them and take that and create work. And Mm -hmm. it can be shown as a direct reference to Wallace, which I think is important. Yeah. I I honestly, I think, like, okay, the, the, the problematic stuff in this story, there's the extreme negative focus on DL, who is one of, like, two named female characters. But, again, I feel like that... It's not necessarily forgivable, and it definitely plays into that, like, lit bro mindset where it's like, I'm going to talk down to the girl in my writing class thing. But, like, when you puzzle through to, like, well, D.L. Eberhardt is D.F. Wallace, like, then it's like, this is a lens pointed at himself, and it feels less gross. Can I talk about... And then there's a lot of weird race, like, characters that are racist against Asians. It's not necessarily the thing he's endorsing, but, like, Sternberg... And Steelworker, I think, both say a bunch of weird stuff about I Asians. I think that is, in my mind, yes, that is problematic and inappropriate and not needed in a story. But I think the reason why it's in there is because it's supposed to show the sort of traditional values of Steelworker and even Sternberg. As like these like masculine yes. figures in contrast to Mark, right? right? Modern, modern values. Yeah, that makes sense. I also think it makes, it's their... Maybe because of when the story sort of reveals itself as about being in the shadow of Vietnam. And yeah. it's like, these are guys that like lived through Vietnam and they have these kind of gross feelings because they've never really examined the 
what that war did to them. Like, and then Sternberg is like weirdly almost self-aware when he points out like part of the reason of that is because things like Hawaii Five O have kind of like papered over the most damning imagery from the war of being like, here's heroes in helicopters so you don't ever think about the helicopters with the napalm that blew up the villages. And I think that's true, too, because, I mean, think about, like, also, like, like John Barr, the characters that Ambrose in his story is being raised post-war from a, from a World War II veteran. But in Westward and in the culture in the 1980s, the Gen X that are growing up, they're being raised by parents who were affected by the Vietnam War. So it's the similar sort of construct in both stories. Yeah. But I think, like, let's talk about my favorite part of the story where Mark has this sort of stream of consciousness where he starts to construct his own story. And then he comes to this awareness that Professor Ambrose had been grooming him since he was a child. No, no, no. This is the thing where he's like, in a story, it would be revealed that <laughs> yes. all of these other characters were secretly Ambrose, who was like mentoring Mark from afar so he could take on his like scepter of metafiction. <laughs> I like that. And then, but it's revealed that she does the voices of all of the different people. And he says, you know, the Trinitarian, you know, uh, archery. archery instructor that I lost my virginity to. And he was like, yes. And he's like, you know, the weird neighbor that lived downstairs. Like he, like, he took on all these sort of like disguises so that he could influence him to become this sort of, you know. This like perfect writer. Yeah. I think maybe that's while saying the same thing, he felt like, you know, that. There was too much pressure on him to be a metafiction writer. Yeah. Which is interesting. But. I, yeah, I, so I, the, like, I don't know what they're, what, it, what it's saying, but I think the, the whole contract of, like, Steel Riders trying to make this ultimate advertisement to end advertising, even though advertising is his entire life, is, like, this interesting, like, you know, it's like about the pursuit of perfection. Like, if you write the perfect novel, then you never need to write again, even though your whole identity is you're a writer. But I think it's interesting that at the end of the story, it's revealed that DL, who leaves Mark, they, they get married under this premise that she's expecting a child, which she is not. Which is another bro kind of thing, to be yeah. tricked into a marriage. Yeah. But then it turns out everybody knows she's faking it, and it's like, oh, this is like another comment on metafiction, where it's like, we all know that it's fake. Like, I don't... That part's weird. I don't fully understand the fake. But then she thing. goes on to be, to actually become the grading, greatest advertising executive known to man. Yeah, she she becomes Steel Ritter's like inheritor in the way that Mark was imagining that he could be Ambrose's right, inheritor. and then she actually achieves his goal of creating. Of making McDonald's actually the world's community restaurant. That's another catchphrase they continually use throughout the, the book. The story is the phrase "world's community restaurant." <laughs> but that's like that's sort of a comment on this sort of excessive advertising, this sort of '80s greediness, this sort of commercialism that was really prevalent in the late '80s. Yeah, yeah. So. The only thing that's missing is, like, somebody who's a stockbroker. Yeah. Like, that would have been the ultimate 80s comment. But then, do you know, this? the thing with Steel Ritter and DL is that, that it 100% is that fantasy that Ambrose has. Because Steel Ritter was the one who cast her as a child in the 
in the the uh, the McDonald's commercial. So he has been guiding right, her he, since her childhood. Because he saw her at the original Funhouse. Her there's a sad story or sort of um, vignette of where DL is. There's a picture of her, like it's sort of a vignette of her and her father. And then it's when you learn that he's the sort of her father's like a Vietnam vet, right? Right, but he takes her to Ocean City, Maryland, and the funhouse is destroyed. Yeah. And that's where J.D. Steelwriter sees her touching the sort of statue that's iconic in the story, Fat May or whatever yeah. she's supposed to be, he, and touching that. And then he sees, like, he has a revelation of, like, her as this sort of symbol of, like, wholesomeness in America. And he hires her for the McDonald's commercial, which is where she... She ends up. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it? Do you think it's weird in this story that we're supposed to uh, think that lime green is an inherently bad color? The DL's clothing is bad because she wears a lot of lime green, and everybody's like, "Ugh, we can't believe someone would wear lime green." Well, I think it's sort of like in the '80s, she's still wearing this sort of '70s icon of a leisure suit. Yeah. Okay. But it turns out that it was all because her father had disappeared at some point. Yes. And she was holding on to that. I also like the sort of touch of, like, Mark wearing, like, a surgeon. They keep referring to it as a surgeon It's like shirt. a trendy surgeon shirt. I'm I wasn't sure what that like, means. scrubs. Like, that was a huge thing in the 80s to wear scrubs. That seems like something that's a comment on Ellis. You yeah. Know, this affectation. He's also always carrying this targeting, this target arrow. Target, oh. Dexter target tip arrow. Yeah. In his shirt, and then he loses it at one point. Again, it's like the symbol for like writing or whatever. And Sternberg tries to use it, and because Sternberg is like this symbol of like shitty realism, he uses it, and like the it becomes this like slapstick in a minor key where he has the whole thing with the cobbler, and he gets water on his his pants, <laughs> and it looks like he peed himself. That's I think that's like. <laughs> But it's like, oh yeah, you're trying to write this like story about like this sad guy that's so awful and he sucks and everything's bad and it becomes ridiculous because of how much awfulness you try to pile on it. Yeah, but I mean also it's a very relatable like social anxiety that he has that, you know, you come out of the bathroom and you splash water on your pants and you you don't want people to think you peed your pants. Mm-hmm. He constantly has to tell them. And everyone can tell. Like everyone <laughs> sees and thinks he peed his pants. <laughs> I think like there's so many touches in the in the story. It's very dense for like yeah. it's like 150 pages, but it's is very very dense. But not no like footnotes or any of that really. I don't think. What are they? No, and I think it's mostly just sort of asides. Like he doesn't really hit his stride with those footnotes until he does point out like he, there's this whole thing where it's like oh this is an intrusive interruption, and then he'll comment on the interruption, and then there'll be parts where he'll argue with himself like. Was that an interruption? I actually think that was maybe pretty relevant that we explain that. One of the things that I like where he sort of takes a jab at metafiction is John Barr specifically pulls out the use of, like, the initial and the dash for mm-hmm. pronouns, for, like, proper nouns. Yeah. And then Wallace just sort of uses them for whatever he wants. Sometimes he uses them for people. Sometimes he uses them for products. Sometimes mm-hmm. he uses them for just anything that he wants. So he sort of takes, like... Even the constructs that Barth creates and sort of, you know... Yeah, he just sort of, like, plays... Cannibalizes them in some way. But, like, you said you didn't like the story. No, I, I, I said and I didn't you, know how I felt about it. 
I do now talking about it more. I like it more. I think it's just because, like I was saying, like oh, I thought that like it was interesting how sort of quaint Lost in the Funhouse is, where it's like sort of sweet, and other metafiction is more antagonistic to the reader. I think this story is that it is more like poking and prodding at you as the reader, so it's not as like smooth a reading experience. But I think, like, I, I I ended up liking it overall. But, like, getting to the end of it, I was like, ooh, I don't know how to feel about this. Well, you know how you, like, you love something and somebody says, oh, recommend a good book to me. And you recommend something to them and they're kind of like, this is weird and I mm-hmm. don't understand this. That's how I feel, like, about, like, books like Broom of the System and, like, Infinite Jest. Like, I like those books a lot. And they're really sort of special to me in a way that I really don't understand but when I when people ask me like should I read that I feel like if they read it and they don't get it then they're kind of turned off by that yeah I I pride myself on being able to give quality recommendations like if I know the person like remember when I said we should read Johnny Get your gun, and you were like completely upset by that. Moment. Oh, I like Johnny Get His Gun is great. It's a wonderfully written story. It's just the single most upsetting thing I've ever read. Like it just was. I just like the scenario that is constructed in that story is so specifically and completely horrifying to me. I had a similar experience when somebody suggested that I read some like surrealist novel. And I read the story of O, and I was... Oh, I've read that. (laughs) I would not recommend that to you. I was just like... You know how, like, you imagine your eyes get really big and you kind of push something away? I was like that. That book disturbed me. Like, people say, oh, I read William S. Burroughs and I get disturbed. Like, that scene, like, in Naked Lunch when he's talking about, like, the wound and it's kind of creepy and disturbing. Oh, yeah. That was nothing compared to this book. I just could not... I don't know what it was about this book I, I that think just kind of... thing with... Stuff like Naked Lunch is it's trading in all of this really disturbing imagery, but it's, like, this frenetic dream where yeah. it's, like... You can, I, you can almost imagine, like... Uh, is the wound the, like, the DA agent that becomes, like, a human leech? Is that what you're talking about? Or is that a different thing? I'm talking about the beginning when he starts... It's a naked lunch where he's talking about injecting himself. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. But you can... you can That's disturbing. But, like, there's lots of other parts of Naked Lunch where you can almost imagine them as, like, Dick Tracy strips. Yeah. Just, like, but, like, just totally whacked out. Well, that's, like, definitely, like, some type of, like, edgy, weird sort of realism. I mean, we should talk more about Burroughs. Sure. I mean, I think I would I would like to do that. That's going to be another thing. Reading Burroughs is going to be another thing, like the beginning of talking about Westward, where I'm like, do you want to explain what this <laughs> story's about? <laughs> Let's just say if you're Gen X, you totally get it. If you're anything after that, you're going to be confused. If you're like the latest generation, whatever title you're getting, you're not even going to want to relate to it. Uh, Yeah. I didn't think this was that, like, hard to get. I did think, like, you know, I'm a weird pop culture obsessive, but I was like, what would it be like to read this story if you didn't have any clue what Hawaii Five Out was? Well, that's what I think. It's, like, it's kind of a time capsule of, like, the time that it was written. Yeah. But then also kind of very relevant. That to- that whole riff on Hawaii Five Out is kind of another 
predictor. Not necessarily of stuff that's happening now, but, like, that felt very Tarantino. Yeah, and I think, like... Like, let's stop so we can... I can tell you my, my thoughts on, like, you know, like a virgin or whatever. Like, it's just, that felt like that similar thing. It's kind of like in Pulp Fiction where they talk right to the screen. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, like, some of the stuff that Wallace talks about, and he, like, you know, things like the celebrity, like alcohol like that's kind of stuff that happens now like mm-hmm. celebrity like artisanal liquors is, is an actual thing yeah. and like we're really close to things like getting like our year sponsored by yeah, the year of the adult <laughs> i remember when the infinite jazz came out that was such a controversial point like people were really upset about this sort of like extreme prediction about like the dependence on like commercialism in like modern culture and we're there yeah i mean it's clear that the wallace had in this story and in infinite jest and, and pretty much most of his stuff he has a lot of anxiety about advertisements and our relationship to advertising because it is this like if you take a step back and view it from the outside advertising is horrifying it is a collection of techniques designed to manipulate and subvert your will that we just allow to be completely omnipresent in our life. You can't even start Windows. And, like, like literally, you turn on Windows 10 and you click the Start button and there are ads in the Start menu. It's just fucking everywhere. Well, I think that's one of the things that, that sort of dates... Well, first I was going to say... If science fiction is a reaction to society's dependence on technology, then Wallace is a reaction to people's dependence on commercialism. But I was mm-hmm. thinking, like, the one thing that sort of dates this story is that there's really no, there's sort of no mention of technology. Because it kind of, like, all this stuff that happens to them on the way to the reunion could have been solved if they would have, in fact, had a cell phone. Like, yeah, if you but had I a think, smartphone, there wouldn't be in this situation. But I don't think that's the case, though, right? Because it's about frustration. If they had a smart a cell phone, they wouldn't have the signal. They'd be playing phone tag. It would. They would just be frustrated in a different way. Yeah, but I think this whole... I mean, The GPS would be wrong. It would take them to a cornfield and not the place that they're trying to go. But I think, like... Like, this is written before the rise of social media... But I think a lot of the things that are happening and a lot of things that happen almost specifically in Infinite Jest are almost like a reaction to things that could happen had social media existed at the time that it was written. Sure, sure. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, he's not as, it's not like a Star Trek thing where it's like literally like the tricorder is the iPad or whatever. But I think in his observations about our relationships to our personal information and to our systems of communication, he did predict a lot of how social media ended up Maybe not necessarily how social media worked in a nuts and bolts way, but in how social media has affected us as a society. Yeah, and I think almost if you think about like a writer like William Gibson who talks directly about the hardware yeah. that affects the way that society... Like, I mean, Neuromancer is almost the same thing. It's the rise of the personal computer mm-hmm. and it's the rise of sort of like the internet, the interconnectivity of technology which is something that hadn't been around before people had computers but they weren't connected to each other and then this concept of like having computers 
having them affect our lives and having us be able to connect to other people through these devices sort of changed the way that like people thought about technology. Yeah, that's like the, my thing that I've always said about cyberpunk is like um, a lot of times what cyberpunk is about is taking the kinds of advanced technology that in like a 70s or 80s sci-fi story would just be in a laboratory and the story would be about the scientists and putting it out into the world, into the structure of capitalist society, and into the hands of an everyday person so that the protagonist of this story about the advanced technology doesn't have to be a scientist and can, in fact, be, like, a street-dwelling scumbag. Right. I always, like, had this interesting idea that someone should do some type of research project where they look at maybe five or six books written at the time relevant to a generation and compare them to other generations and see what like what books were relevant to and important to gen x what books are relevant and important to like baby boomers what books are relevant and important to millennials and maybe sort of take it back even to like you know like the post-war generation the sort of lost generation all these different sort of pockets of like societal Mm -hmm. Um, stratus and seeing what books and what those books say about the generation Mm -hmm. yeah i think that could be really interesting i'm yeah i don't know i mean that's like we were sort of what we were talking about where you're like oh yeah like this infinite jest has like this similar place in culture in now that like bond by the vanities used to have like you can sort of see those chains between works but let's just wrap it up by like one thing about John Barth. Sure. Um, John Barth was, con- there was a writer who was writing about John Barth, John Gardner, and he said. I love that, John Gardner. Yes, he said that jo- <laughs> that Barth stories were immoral and fake. <laughs> yeah. As they portrayed life as absurd. Mm-hmm. So that was the comment that he made about John Barth. And I think that the homage that David Foster Wallace writes to John Barth takes those things and actually uses those contracts that criticize John Barth and uses them to create the homage that he creates for the metafiction. Yeah. I, I, it's like, I don't, I agree with the basic premise of what Gardner is saying, but not the judgment that he's making. But yeah, that's like, we were, when we were talking about doing this episode, you were like, how come Barth doesn't have like, uh, isn't talked about like in the same senses as like a lot of other, writers from the time like like a vonnegut or whatever and i was like oh yeah well i think it's because he's kind of in between these two like you were talking about it's kind of in between the pre and post-war generations and i was like you know how come people don't talk about john gardner and then i was like oh yeah they don't talk about john gardner because he pissed them off because of the shit he said like that (laughs) he was very judgmental but i think that john barth i mean he i mean he's he won a national book award in 1973 for his chimera uh, his novel, and I think that like his things are like critically acclaimed. Like the Sotweed Factor is very, you know, it's also on a lot of lists of like top one hundred books to read and things like that. But I think you're right. I think he just doesn't sort of fit into like the sort of generation that he's writing in. He's sort of like an outlier. I mean, I had never read anything by him until I read this. I I want to I want to read that goat. <laughs> story that sounds great that sounds really up my alley well it says guile's goat boy which is 800 pages long it's fine is a speculative fiction based on the conceit of the university as a universe guile's a boy raised as a goat discovers his humanity and becomes a savior in the story 
presented as a computer tape given to Barth, who denies that it is his own work. This is a hunt. This couldn't be further up my alley. It gets better. In the course of the novel, Giles carries out all the tasks prescribed by Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces. <laughs> Barth actually kept a list of the tasks taped to his wall while he was writing the book. Wow, no, 100, that's like a just written for me. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm definitely going to read that. That's funny, though, because it really is like... It sounds like, it's almost like a Neil Stevenson, like, it sounds like a book that he would describe reading in one of his books. I wanna it look, doesn't sound like a real book. I want to look something up real fast. Um, when did that, do you, know, do you have a date for when that was published? Okay, yeah, I found So that comes out, that's 66. It's early. Puts it, but interestingly, this is a whole tangent. I might as well cutting this out. Interesting puts it five years before Gardner's Grendel, which feels very similar. It's another commentary on like story structure and mythic structure, and here's this character that's like this weird outsider, this halfway between animal and human, who's wrestling with their perception of the world and their place in it. But it could also be argued that Grendel could be. Either metafiction or metafiction adjacent, it's because he takes a character that exists in another form mm-hmm. and reinvents him into this sort of modern style. He has a modern morals, modern aesthetic, and the novel is written in a modern style. It's not written like the original poem. No, though there so, are parts where he does use some stuff from the yeah. Uh, Grendel's getting great. It's one of my favorite novels, like, ever. I highly recommend it. But, like, that is one of those ones that's in a weird halfway period, because it's used, definitely, like you said, using a metafictional technique. And you can easily read that both ways. Because you can read it and be like, Grendel is just the, like, font for the philosophical thought process of Gardner, and thus this is metafiction. Because it's constantly making me think about John Gardner. Or you can read it just as like Grendel is a character that thinks this way. And I don't ever need to think about John Gardner. <laughs> so it could be metafiction depending on your reading of it. Which is interesting. So maybe his um, reaction to John Barth is sort of personalized. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. So uh, do we have anything else to say? I don't think you could say anything about metafiction. How could we have talked about it for so long? It's amazing. I yeah, that's so meta. <laughs> so this would in uh, be a part in a podcast where they would sign off, and a lot of podcasts would have some sort of sign off that they would do every episode a little bit of a catchphrase, maybe something that ties into the premise of the podcast, or or maybe something that doesn't make any sense and it's just kind of a nonsense phrase. Like stay, spoiler alert: stay tuned. Stay tuned.